Hey, welcome to the 77th episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a contributor to The Athletic. The music you're listening to is croissants from the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to comics to novels to horrors to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today, I'm doing something a bit different. Last week's episode featured Kimberly A. Martin, who left the Washington Post earlier this year to jump to Yahoo. And with her departure, the newspaper found itself in a desperate, immediate need of a Redskins beat writer. Well, enter Les Carpenter, veteran journalist, but a guy who hadn't exclusively covered a team since UConn basketball for the Connecticut Post more than two decades earlier. So I thought it'd be cool to talk about what it is to take on a beat. Unfamiliar team, unfamiliar players, and jump right in. Les also talks about an amazing story he wrote on the 1980 Iran hostages receiving lifetime passes from Major League Baseball, as well as what he did as a writer the moment Alex Smith's leg was snapped. It's a really crazy and fascinating episode, and it's right now on Two Writers, Slingin' Yang. All right, Les, first of all, thank you for uh, thank you for joining me today. This is kind of like a two-part episode, because last week I had your predecessor on the Redskins beat at the Washington Post, uh, Kimberly Martin, on, and now you're here. And, and I was thinking... Um, I'm really fascinated by this idea of jumping onto a beat. And you used to be with the Post. You just came back to the Post in August. And you were given the Redskins beat right after Kimberly left. What is it to start a beat from scratch? Well, you know, the funny thing about it was I hadn't done a beat probably in about in close to 20 years. Uh, you know, I, when I first got into the business, uh, my first job was at the uh, Connecticut Post in Bridgeport, Connecticut. I covered UConn basketball for a few years for them and then went on to Seattle and covered the Seattle Seahawks for two years. And then after that, I, I was a columnist or a feature writer or an enterprise writer. There was always something else. I was never a beat writer ever again. Uh, so to suddenly be asked in the middle of August, would I like to come back to the post and would I like to cover the Redskins? I, I didn't really have a time to, to think about what that meant or what I needed to do to prepare. I, I just literally had to jump into it. And in some ways, I wonder if that just made it easier. Uh, I, I have not had a moment to sit back and think, gosh, how's this going? What have I done? Uh, should I have done this differently? Uh, I just have to sit there and every day is a new adventure and I, and I take it as that. Uh, I keep thinking of that, that TV show, uh, back in the eighties, Quantum Leap, where the, guy would just jump into the body of a different person in a different scenario every day. And I, I almost feel like that's what it's been. I just, I wake up and all right, what do we do now? And so as much as I thought this would be difficult and as much as I thought that I would really struggle with the, with the idea of doing a beat again, uh, it's been somewhat easy for me because I haven't had time to, to really contemplate what it all means. I remember when I was covering baseball, sort of in the late 90s, early 2000s. And if a new guy came onto a beat in a city, um, he or she would go around to all the players and he'd say, hey, I'm so-and-so, just so you know, I'm, I'm the new beat writer, I'm the new beat writer. And I always wondered if the players actually cared. And I wonder, like, you come here, you're the Washington Post Redskins beat writer. Do you go around the locker room, introduce yourself to players? <laughs> and do they, are they like, yeah, okay, that's good. I don't care. <laughs> It's funny you ask that because I, I had that very thought myself. Well, how do I do this? And 
my first day that I think it was probably my first day actually on the beat was the first day they opened the locker room after training camp was over up through training camp and even to the beginning of when the season starts the first week of the season locker rooms are traditionally closed in the NFL and you get people out on the field afterward. So I walk in my first day was the first day the locker rooms open and I kind of walk up and I introduced myself to a couple players and kind of got a blank stare and I realized this is stupid. Nobody cares. Right. And no, I, I haven't done that since. <laughs> but, uh, over time, you'll, you'll start talking to a person. Uh, you, you know, one of the things I've, I've done with this job is to try and write a big Sunday feature every week. So when you sit down with that person, you might, you know, introduce yourself. I think over time they get used to seeing you, but I think more than anything, the players, they know you just by you're the, you're this face that comes up to them. You're this guy, you know, who stands in the locker room and looks however you look. Uh, I don't think people are sitting there saying, Oh gosh, there's, there's less. Uh, in fact, I'm not sure how many guys on that team even know my name. I can think of two players right now who know my name. And outside of that, I, I'm not sure if they do or not. Uh, no, no one's really said, and I haven't really asked. Isn't that funny? It's really a change. I feel like as a young writer, you like the idea of players knowing your names. And as an older writer, who gives a shit? It doesn't really matter, does it? <laughs> it doesn't, especially the way the business is today. No, I, I really agree with you. And I think back to the other times when I did beats, uh, a lot of the Seattle Seahawks in that first year yeah, knew my name very quickly. Uh, but then remember, that was a day when everybody read the newspaper. I don't know how many people are physically reading the newspaper and so making that connection. You you become kind of just another thing in a blob of digital uh, stories that just sort of fly by their faces. Um, you know, I think back to when I was a Yukon writer and UConn recruited this kid out of Dalzell, South Carolina, named Ray Allen. And I covered that recruitment, and I flew down to uh, Columbia, South Carolina, and drove to his high school and interviewed him. And when he came back up to UConn the next year, it's, it's high Les. Uh, Les, let me tell you about the you – know, he pulled me aside one day before the season even started, and I happened to be up there and, and wanted to tell me that he had had a child. And at, at the time, that was something that was sort of almost taboo. Fall of 1993, and for an athlete to say – I'm 18 years old and I have a child. That, that was a little rare, but that was Ray's way of doing things. But I think that a lot of players don't have that understanding, that knowledge or that care today. And so you, know, you just kind of go with it. And you know, I don't, I, I certainly don't take it personally that nobody knows my name or if many of them or I, I don't suspect that they know my name and it doesn't really matter. Yeah. That, that's sort of irrelevant to what we're trying to do. This is actually fascinating, and I didn't think about this. You are, in a way, you're like the guy, you're like the major league manager who manages a team in the 90s, goes away, and comes back. How is covering a beat different in 2018 than it was, whatever, in the mid to late 90s? I think to answer that question, I should also say, what's it like to come back to the Washington Post eight years after I left? Because yeah. everything goes significantly faster than it did before. and. It, you know, my, my two stops in between at, at, at Yahoo Sports and at The Guardian, uh, I was certainly used to things going quickly. Uh, you know, stories came and left. But I, at The Post, it's amazing at how fast everything travels and how quickly you're on to the next thing and how, how fast you have to get the next post up. Uh, you know, in the old days, back when you, say, covered baseball at, the, uh, at Sports Illustrated or, you know, when I was in Seattle or even when I came to The Post the first time, 
you know, you covering a beat meant you would go to the ballpark or the or the stadium or the locker room or whatever, and you would talk to players, you'd come up with a story, whatever it is, and you'd write the story the next day, and that was it. Uh, you cover the game maybe, and that was it. Uh, now you, you there's there's kind of this twenty four hour cycle of there always has to be a post up on the internet. Uh, you know, you're not thinking necessarily about the print product; you're thinking about the digital product. And yet, at the same time, because the Washington Post has such a, a still a large print circulation, you are thinking about that. And so, I think it's just a constant churn of, well, what's the story today? What's the story this minute? And that is probably the biggest difference. I think there are some other ones that are that are kind of interesting to me. The fact that you don't necessarily have that automatic bond with the athlete that they went home and read the newspaper or read the magazine or whatever it is. Uh, so that they probably aren't paying attention to who you are. Uh, I think that's the same thing even with the coaches. You, know, you don't get feedback on what you wrote, either positively or negatively. No one's saying, hey, that was a great story you wrote about me, or hey, that was a piece of garbage. How dare you write that? Actually, you know what's really interesting? I feel like a lot of young writers don't know the fear of walking into a manager or coach's office on the day you know he he is going to be pissed off at you. You know what I mean? Like, that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> Walking into Jim Fergosi's office and knowing he's going to be really fucking mad at you. Or, I don't know, Jim Calhoun's office and knowing he's going to be fierce. Because I don't think, I think you're right. They don't have the attention to detail of what you're writing anymore. They don't pay attention. They're not thinking, what is this guy writing in the Washington Post today? What is going to piss me off? I can't wait to see him. I don't even know if that exists at all anymore. It's just different. Uh, you know, you talk about the manager's office. I mean, a, a guy that I spent some time around in Seattle, even though I was covering the Seahawks for some of that time, I did a lot of football. I, I did a lot of baseball, too, and Lou Pinella was the manager there. And Lou was very fiery, as I'm sure you know, but Lou mm-hmm. also could be a wonderful storyteller. Those times in the manager's office were fantastic. He'd either be mad or he'd be happy. He'd He'd bark at you. He'd snap at your question. It made you ask a better question. The thing that really is disturbing today, and I and I and I saw this starting almost over ten years ago, fifteen years ago, was the idea of the press conference. The you know the idea that the coach or the manager, whoever it is, doesn't sit in their office anymore, or talk to you in the hallway. Everything is very formal. They're sitting in um, or they're standing behind a podium, and the questions are you know there's there's just a detachment. And in some ways, that's fine. You're not going to probably have somebody you know, scream at you about your question or or tell you how terrible they thought your story was. But on the other hand, I don't think you necessarily get that same intimacy. You don't get those questions that kind of dig in deeper to who the people are. And, they're, and you don't probably get the answers that are necessarily going to be from the heart. I, I think often the, the manager or the coach or whatever it is today because they're in such a stiff, formal setting, almost I I would kind of almost compare it to like a White House press briefing. Uh, Your answers that you're going to get are going to be very, you know, stilted and prepared. And it's almost as if it's like a doctor's visit. It's to be endured. It's not to be something that you build any kind of rapport or understanding with. And, I, I, you know, that is that is probably... You know, when you talk about what's different today in, in beat writing, I think that's that's one thing that really comes to mind, uh, how impersonal all of this has become. I think it will not shock you 
if I tell you that in, I think, 2001, I interviewed Lou Pinella while he was taking a piss at the urinal, eating a hoagie, and smoking a cigarette all at the same time. <laughs> I was going to say there had to be a cigarette involved if it was Pinella. There was a cigarette involved. Uh, I remember very vividly uh, an interview in his office the year after they won 116 games. It was in spring training. I was doing a, a big profile on him for the Seattle Times where I was working. And uh, I, I came into his office in, in Peoria, Arizona, cinder block walls, you know, the, the old desk there, you know, in the corner. I want to say he went through three cigarettes at, at least uh, and drank two cups of just nasty looking black coffee. And I just kept thinking, my God, what, what must be inside this guy's body? And, you know, and I, I almost think that, the, you know, the old manager sort of was, you know, he must have just had iron, iron veins. I, it, 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 you know, I, <laughs> it, it was very personal. And yet at the same time, it, it was almost too personal. I shouldn't say it doesn't ever happen. Uh, Jay Gruden, the coach of the Redskins, I, I think is incredibly polite. Uh, really does think about what we do. His brother was in the media to, you know, as a Monday night football guy. Uh, but I think he also is the kind of person who understands, you know, oh, you have a job to do. Well, let me see if I can help you. And you can pull him aside every once in a while and sit down with him, uh, on a couch outside the locker room for a few minutes. And he can be very good in those situations. And, you know, I, and I think really truly wants to try. But I would say that the norm today is that most coaches aren't like that. Uh, most baseball managers aren't like. Yeah, I, d I just want to say, just to emphasize this point, when I was at Sports Illustrated, there were a couple of legendary stories, including a writer we had named Jack McCallum interviewing Whitey Herzog when he was managing, I think, the Cardinals. And Herzog was sitting behind a desk, and they did a full interview. And at the end of the interview, Herzog stood up, and he was completely naked from the waist down. And then <laughs> Steve, Steve Russian, another writer, having Doug Rader, who was managing, I think, the Rangers at the time, throw his pants at him. Like in anger, throw his pants at him, <laughs> and I just think you don't you don't get pants thrown at you in 2018 too often. I remember the first time I uh, I did a major league baseball game on a credential. Uh, I was in college at the University of Missouri. It was in the 1980s. Woody Herzog was managing the Cardinals, and I had done some work for UPI. If you remember the old wire service, kind of, of on the side. And I, uh, so he got me a pass and I went down to a Cardinal game. I wanted to see what it was like. I think I might've been a freshman or sophomore in college. And, uh, so I, I probably had to be about 18 or 19. And I remember walking in there, it was a group of people for a game. And literally, I want to say every fourth word began with the letter F. And I, it was just, fuck this, fuck that, fuck this, fuck that. And I, and I looked down at my notebook cause I just left all those out and I had about five words. And I realized, awesome. well, I guess this is what it's like covering baseball. And so I decided it was for me. But yeah, that is all different now because all these are recorded. All of these are, uh, they're, they're filmed live. They're, they're shown by whatever cable network does the team, whatever radio station broadcasts the team. Uh, any clip that is not necessarily PG 13 is not, you know, will, will be dissected on the internet. And so therefore everybody is incredibly careful about what. So Kimberly Martin leaves Washington Post to go to Yahoo Sports. You're at the Guardian, the Washington Post. I guess they they reach out to you like, how long? How much time do you have to accept this job? Well, so here's the interesting thing. I was no longer physically at the Guardian. Uh, I had left the Guardian almost uh, over a year before. 
because they had uh, they had downsized considerably in the United States. And so there was a, a period of, I want to say, maybe 14 months that I did not, maybe longer, that I did not have a job. And so I was freelancing for The Guardian. And so I was very much in need of something. And I remember very vividly, I was I woke up, I went to my favorite coffee shop where I like to write, much like you, I like to write in coffee shops. And uh, I was I was sitting there, and I got an email from Matt Vita, who is the sports editor of the Washington Post, and was my editor previously at the Post the, when I was there uh, between 2005 and 2010. And it, uh, it it very mysteriously said he had something and he wanted to talk to me. And I guess they were serious about it because, uh, I mean, again, you being a coffee guy, you could probably respect this. He, he actually showed up at my coffee shop a few hours oh, later nice. to talk yeah. about it and uh, basically laid out the job. Uh, we need someone to cover the Redskins. And I said, why? Who's leaving? And he said, Kimberly Martin. And I thought, well, gosh, Kimberly just got there. I, you know, when he first said Redskins, I was kind of hoping I'd be working with Kimberly. So uh, I, I had essentially, you know, 12 to 24 hours to decide. Given that I was kind of always hoping to come back to the post and in many ways kind of was sad about leaving the first time, uh, it wasn't a terribly difficult decision. I just had to process in my mind, can I do a beat again after two decades of not doing one? Uh, I, I have to say it was a very quick hire. Usually these things don't take as little a time as this one did, but uh, I he approached me on a Monday and I was hired by Friday. I don't even know how you go about this. Do you call, Do you, I don't know, do you reach out to Kimberly and say, tell me everything there is to know about the Redskins? Do you dig through clips? Do you find a media guy? Do you call the PR guy? Like, how do you, how do you start a beat when you haven't had a beat and you probably don't know very much about the team you're about to cover. Uh, yeah, it's interesting because I, I, I mean, I was not totally unfamiliar with the Redskins because I had done a lot of Redskins stuff when I was at the Post before. Although that you know, there had been an eight year gap. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was at Yahoo Sports, I wrote a lot about the NFL. I, you know, certainly the RG three years were fodder for a lot of stories. So I would stop in there every once in a while. It wasn't. Totally unfamiliar to me. But yeah, it had been a few years since I had even been out to their facility or had written a word about that team. Uh, the first few things I did, well, one, I emailed the PR guy and you know, he knew who I was, but I just said, look, I'm going to be taking this over. Uh, I emailed Kimberly and I emailed Kareem Copeland, uh, who is my co-writer on the beat, uh, introducing myself because he had only been hired a few <laughs> a few months before me. And I realized the two of us were going to be sort of flying blind on this. I also sat down and talked for a long time with uh, my editor, the NFL editor at the Post, Jeff Dooley, who's wonderful. And, and it was really easy to kind of uh, work through what we would do and how we would do it. But yeah, we were essentially inventing something. And we were sort of inventing, you know, I was reintroducing myself to a team that you're right, I had not watched a whole lot of and didn't necessarily know a great deal about. There was definitely a learning curve, without a doubt. And, uh, there were a lot of, uh, a lot of pratfalls along the way. I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I remember that you, you know, very, very early in the process was cut down day. And, uh, I, I still wasn't familiar with all the names. Can you imagine? There's, there's, you know, 90 some guys, almost a hundred guys in, uh, in training camps and they all have to be cut down in a matter of, uh, well, nowadays they do it, they do it in one day. And, there was a guy with the last name McPhee and, uh, and, 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 and McGee, and I, and I was actually mixing the two up. And so oh, I, I, I thought they were the same person for, uh, for a day. So, I, yeah, there was a whole lot of learning how to spell names, a whole lot of trying to figure who, got, who people were, 
what necessarily was going on with this team. I am, yeah, there was a lot I had to still familiarize myself with, and it was, uh, it was something that had a lot of trial error. And I'm, yeah, fortunately, I had some good editors at the post who caught a lot of bad mistakes. Right. You, uh, I have a story you wrote in front of me. It's uh, from November eighteenth. And it was the, uh, it's just, it's a game story from the, they lost 23-21 to the Texans. This is a game when Alex Smith was, was hurt and out for the year. Uh, I'm just going to read your lead real quick, which is, uh, late on Sunday afternoon, Washington Redskins coach Jay Gruden emerged from the back of the team's locker room and began walking down a FedEx field corridor. Outside, the scoreboard said his team had lost 23-21 to Houston Texans. Inside the room behind him, doctors had told him his quarterback, Alex Smith, had fractured the tibia and fibula in his lower right leg and would be headed to immediate surgery. As Gruden walked, his eyes stared at nothing in front of him. He let out a deep breath. Smith had gone down midway through the third quarter on a sack from Houston's Kareem Jackson, his leg breaking in such a grotesque manner that it provided an eerie reminder to, of another Redskins quarterback, Joe Theismann, 33 years to the day since his own gruesome leg injury. Anyone who watched Gruden making the postgame walk had to wonder whether the season was crumbling before him. To Dallas, he said when asked where his mind turns now. First of all, that's really freaking good, and um, and obviously written on the on the fly because you're you're writing a game story and you have to turn it around quick. Uh, I am really fascinated. What are you as a guy who has not covered a beat in a long time, and now you're back covering this beat? When you are writing a game story, what are you looking to do, and what are you looking for? Well, you know that was a question I had in my mind uh, when I first. <laughs> sat down to write my first game story uh when the uh when the Redskins played the uh, the Arizona Cardinals uh in 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 their first game and uh, a few hours for kickoff I was emailing back and forth with Jeff Dooley the editor I mentioned and and uh and he said let's try and think this year of every story is a chapter in a book and that just made it easy for me. Once he said wow. that I thought this is what I'm going to do and I love that answer. I mean yeah, I, I don't so think good. an editor could it have given me a better answer than that. It actually brought back a memory, and I, I'm going to bring up another writer here, but I, uh, back when I covered UConn basketball in the early 90s, and I had forgotten I had said this, but uh, one of my rival writers on that beat was uh, Adrian Wojnarowski, who's obviously gone on to great things at ESPN. And it was actually Woj who recently said to me, don't you remember what you used to say about the beat? You used to say it's a serial. And, you know, like, 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 you know, like the old soap operas or, or the, or the, or the podcast by that name. Uh, you know, each, each, each day is a whole new, you know, an episode of, of this long running drama. And, you know, I, I kind of forgotten that, but it really all came flooding back to me at that day in Arizona. It's like, this is what it is. We're telling a story every day here. And so in the NFL, you have 16 games. Well, I, I'm going to write a 16 chapter book here. And hopefully that will uh, that will make sense at the end if we line them all up. I, I I fear if I did that it might not be as tidy and clean as I as I hoped. Uh, but that is the approach I try to take. This is this is part of a bigger story, and this is one little sort of this is that chapter. And 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 you know what are the what are the consequences of it? What does it all mean? What happened? Who said what? How did it feel? How did it smell? You know, and it's in the case of, of the story you mentioned here, what's the look on Jay Gruden's face? I just that when he's walking out of that locker room and I see him and I'm standing there in the hallway, kind of with that very purpose of seeing what his face looked like after being told whatever was going he's going to be told about Alex Smith. Uh, you know, it just it it kind of made everything for me right there. I knew this is where I'm going to go with the story. Were you consciously 
waiting to see the expression on his face? Like, were you actually yeah. thinking in your head, I need to see what his face looks like right now? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, and I used to do that a lot. Uh, you know, we talk about things that are different, in, you know, in the, in the old days to today. In the old days, you didn't necessarily have to file a story right at what they call the buzzer. I, uh, you know, I have to, I have to write a running game story that's, you know, that's gibberish and hopefully nobody ever sees or reads and, you know, has been thrown away. But there is a version of that story that's not very good that was written, uh, on the fly in the second half. And, it, you know, it's got 900 words in it and it's, uh, and it was filed right at the end of the game. But before those days, you know, before the kind of modern era where you have to do that in the old days, I would just walk down to the, you know, I, I like to see what, what, what reactions were, how people were handling things once they stepped out of the lights of the television and, you know, and, and into the dark tunnels and, you know, what they look like in those few moments where nobody else sees them but me. So, yeah, I, I used to do that a lot, and I absolutely wanted to do it in this situation. I, and not every game would I do that, but this is definitely one where I wanted to see what Jay Gruden looked like as he walked in the locker room. Right, so, so you're watching the game, you're in the press box, um, Alex Smith suffers this, as you wrote properly, a, a very gruesome injury. As soon as you see that happen, you do what? And you think what? Like what, how does that change what you were doing in the press box at that moment? At that instant moment, it doesn't change a lot because at, you know, there's not a whole lot of reporting you can do at that moment. Uh, Kareem next to me, uh, my, my fellow writer, uh, he did a little more reporting of that than I did. Uh, trying to see if he could figure out any answers. I, I, my, my assignment then is the game story and I have to put all my focus into that. Uh, but immediately I'm thinking, wow, this is, you know, <laughs> it's going to be the understatement of the year. This is big. Uh, uh, my first thought was Theisman. Uh, and ironically, Theisman happened to be in the building. Uh, we had a very enterprising, uh, sidebar writer there. Roman Stubbs, a very good writer for us who, uh, who basically stalked Theisman outside the suite where he was sitting to get him. So I knew that we had that angle covered. Uh, and then it just, you know, I knew Kareem was going to, was going to get all the reporting he could get on, on, you know, what had happened and what was up with Alex Smith, as well as kind of looking into Colt McCoy, his replacement. And then for me, uh, it was just a matter of, okay, how do we, you know, we're going to have an hour after the game to write a game story. What do we do here? And, uh, so that's, that's kind of where my mind went, uh, after Theisman was, okay, how am I going to handle this? What are we going to do? And, you know, how can we get this done as, you know, as, as cleanly as we can, as quickly as we can, and then move on to what reporting comes after this. When you're, when you're going through this all and you're writing about it and you're covering the game and you're trying to figure out what, uh, how to approach it, um, I ask this, not asking for the automatic, of course, answer. I'm actually interested, like, do you have any empathy for Alex Smith at that moment? Or is it just strictly, I need to write this story. I need to get the facts. I need to get this as act. Like, does it enter your mind at that point? Man, this poor guy, just his career might be over. Yeah, I think that's interesting because, yes, you do. Uh, you absolutely do have empathy. Um, you, you know, for one thing, you, you see these guys every day. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm certainly not going to say there was any closeness between any of us and Alex Smith. He he comes into a press conference once a week on a Wednesday. It's uh, he's incredibly professional. He's incredibly polite. He will never, ever, ever tear apart a question. Uh, he will never change his expression or his mood. It's always relatively sunny. 
Uh, you know, he does all the things that a team would want in a quarterback. Uh, so yeah, you, you don't have any necessarily, uh, you know, personal relationship, but you still see the guy every day. Uh, I think where I started to go with my mind was I knew how important he was to the rest of that team. There was definitely a leadership there. And more importantly, there was a calm, that poise that he would show in these little press conferences he would have with us was the same exact poise he showed everywhere else. Anything bad ever happened, he never got up and he never got down. And I, I, I thought, gosh, this team needs that. And and I, it's actually one of the things that we could get into this too if you wanted about, you know, the locker rooms, because I, I feel sometimes you can, especially in the NFL, you can see what a good locker room is and what a bad locker room is. This is actually a very good locker room. It's a, It's got a lot of guys that, that actually truly do buy into each other and believe in each other. And I know it sounds like cliches, but there is actually something, I think, to that. And I think that Alex was a big part of making that happen. And I think there was a selflessness to him in how he dealt with those other players. So as that second half is going on and as things are kind of going up and down, and I, I should say that his replacement, Colt McCoy, is also very well liked on that team. But still, I think there's that sudden trauma that, that, that the team suffers of the person who kept them stable isn't there anymore, and now what do they do? And that's, that's kind of probably as the game went on, that's, that's sort of where my mind went. Do you feel like as a writer you can, um, you can read a locker room accurately without players straight up telling you this is a great locker room or this is a shitty locker room? Like are there actual signs, telltales that you can read? That tell you what you need to know. Sometimes it's a feel. Uh, you can kind of walk in and kind of judge the sincerity and phoniness of of players. Uh, yeah, I think within a couple days of kind of walking around that that Redskins locker room, those first uh, you know those first you know days in August. Uh, I I yeah I I got a, a very quickly a feel like this is different than other Redskins locker rooms. And this is different than other locker rooms I've been around, uh, good and bad. There is, there is absolutely, uh, something about this team that seems close. And, 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 and some of it again isn't something that's necessarily you, a feeling you can grab. It's more an emotion. It's more a sense. Uh, so then I followed it up with questions. I, I remember a couple of different players I was just kind of standing around, you know, chatting with for whatever story I was doing. And oh, by the way, you know, What's, what's this locker room like? What's this team like? And once I started asking that question, almost every single player to a man said, this is different than anyone we've ever had around here before. This is, this is not like most locker rooms that I've ever seen. And, or I've been with other teams and I've never had a group like this. And once players started to say that, then it kind of confirmed my thinking. But yeah, those first couple of days, it was very much just a sense. And I immediately could feel Okay, well, this this group's a little different. I don't know if they'll be they'll be great to talk to. I don't know if they'll be interesting, but there's definitely a sense in them that they are they are they are cohesive and they believe in each other and they're probably not going to roll over on each other. And that's you know I, I I'm sure you must have felt that at times when you went into locker rooms and clubhouses, but but for me that that jumped out right away. That was probably the biggest thing that jumped out at me about the Redskins when I took over this beat. I was wondering how you felt. A few days ago, when Adrian Peterson was in the news uh, with the Bleacher Report story, 
and you know, the news sort of coming out of it was that he still beats his kids or blah, blah, blah. But, but when you're a beat writer and a guy on your team is in the news for something and it is not your paper and not you reporting it, do you get that sort of sick feeling in your stomach at first or do you just not, are you like, eh, whatever? <laughs> no, no, I, I don't think when you have a beat, you ever sleep completely, uh, soundly. Uh, it, it definitely, some of that has taken a toll on me as this year has gone on. I, I, you're always kind of wondering what the calamity is. I, uh, I was, I walked into the airport in, uh, in Dallas flying home the other day and, uh, one of the other riders was there and he was sitting at the, uh, you know, at the terminal. He was on my flight. He was at the gate and he had his laptop open and at six in the morning. I'm like, Oh God, what? don't tell me there's something. Have I missed this right. already? Uh, so, you know, that, that never does go away. Um, in that particular instance, it was interesting. One, because it was written by a former Redskin reporter for the Washington Post. So I knew that was, uh, you know, I, I knew he had been talking to Adrian Peterson. So I, in the back of my mind, that was always something that would be up there. Uh, and when I saw it, it was, gosh, this is, this is going to be discussed a lot. Who do I go talk to now? Where do I, where do I go with this? And, uh, so I, you know, I had to, I had to go around and, and ask some questions of people and, and see if I could get any response. And it's Thanksgiving, so you're not going to get a ton. And in this case, nobody really wanted to talk. Uh, but you feel like you still have to do it. Um, in some ways, I wasn't quite as bothered by it because I had had this very discussion with, with Peterson a few weeks before and in story and sat down with him and we kind of discussed what we were, uh, you know, I brought this up to him and, you know, he actually answered the questions and, and answered them fairly honestly, I thought, for at least how he felt. Uh, and so, you know, we, he was on record in the Washington Post talking about this. Uh, so I did feel at least, well, I've, I've, I've asked the questions and he's given me his responses. Uh, this is a little bit different twist to it, but nonetheless, uh, you know, that is going to happen. And then you have to react to it as you react to it and, and how people want to, you know, either say something or not when you ask the question. Uh, but yeah, no, it definitely does not. You, you you never shrug it away and say, oh gosh, this is nothing. It's always something. Before we continue with Two Riders Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my son Emmett. So Emmett, Thanksgiving break is over. Are you excited to be going back to school? No. What can I do to make you feel better? Nothing. A little ice cream? Absolutely not. Want to go watch the Lakers? Nope. How about a Duran Major Memphis Showboats jersey from 503 Sports? Can we go to school right now? Emmett, it's nine at night. It's okay, Dad. I just want to show everybody my Showboats gear. You can, son. And that's because 503 Sports are the kings of throwback sports merchandise. Hats, t-shirts, jerseys from all sorts of leagues, ranging from the USFL to the World League to the XFL to minor league hockey, minor league baseball. So be like Emmett Perlman and visit 503-sports.com and type in coupon code YANG18 to save 10% off your first purchase. Thanks, Pa. I always ask writers to send me a couple of their stories that they really like. And you sent me one. I had never read it uh, from 2006 called Safe at Home. Uh, subhead is 25 years ago. A gift from Major League Baseball helped Iran hostages reconnect with America. And it's a piece about the, uh, you know, the Iran hostages and, how they, uh, there were 52 hostages this is during the Jimmy Carter presidency and they're held in Iran and they come back and Major League Baseball gives each of them a lifetime pass. It's like the weirdest, quirkiest, tiniest, interesting, fascinating detail story ever. The lead real quick is it was a small thing, really barely bigger than a credit card. 
talked on pretentiously in a small black case. For each of the 52 American hostages who bounded off the plane, free at last, the ticket stuffed inside the box was another of the trinkets that piled up around them, a modest reward for the cold metal muzzle of a shotgun pressed against their faces. For 444 days, they had been tied and blindfolded, held hostage in the U.S. Embassy in Iran by student revolutionaries incensed at the United States' decision to admit Iran's alien deposed Shah uh, for medical treatment. Long before 9-11, Afghanistan and Iraq, there were the Iran hostages. Their plight paralyzed a country unaccustomed to sets an affront and likely cost President Jimmy Carter re-election in 1980. Then, 25 years ago today, they were released the moment Ronald Reagan took the oath of office. And it's this crazy story because it's the big is the hostages and Iran and Carter and Reagan, but the tiny is, and what makes it great is it's actually a story about these guys all getting lifetime passes to Major League Baseball, which is so insane. How do you even know this existed? <laughs> well, <laughs> I was watching the I was watching them come home. Like I think everybody probably of of any age who remembers that that was. Uh, and you saw them coming off the plane, and they were given you know different speeches and things. And I remember they were given this baseball pass. And in the back, I, I think I was about 12 years old at the time. And I thought, wow, that is really cool. I would love that. And <laughs> sort of in the back of my mind, it had always sat there. I wonder whatever happened with that baseball pass. And yeah, it was one of those things that kind of, you know, it sits in your mind every once in a while and you forget about it. And when I got to the Washington Post in 2005, I actually was hired in the beginning to write about baseball. And so I'm thinking of ideas, and I, I brought up uh, in my interview, actually, with the sports editor, Emilio Garcia Ruiz, I, I said, hey, you know, here's an idea that's always been in my mind. He loved it right from the start. And so I figured it probably didn't hurt to have brought that up in the interview. And so uh, when I got hired, I began work on I just thought it would be easy. I didn't realize there's a couple things in this. I, I didn't realize that the people who were hostages were all Marines or diplomats neither of whom really liked to talk a whole lot to the media. Or I, I should say they were, they, were, they were more like CIA, uh, not even just diplomats. There were very few diplomats. So FBI, CIA, things like that. You, these are people who don't talk ever. And so I'd call up some ex-Marine and I'd say, I want to talk to you about this. And, oh, I don't want to talk to Washington Post. And so it, it was like pulling teeth. Uh, many of my phone conversations were literally five minutes. But I just kept the list of the hostages, and I would occasionally get a number. And every once in a while, someone would talk to me for a couple minutes, and I'd say, well, do you know anybody else? And I'd say, well, yeah, I'm friends with this guy. Here's his number. And so I'd call that person. And then that person maybe would give me a number. And slowly I, I got a several people, and a few actually talked a little more than others. And I was able to piece this together, but it took me forever to do. And I kept thinking, this is terrible. The story's never going to run. And then one day it hit me, wait a second, this is coming, we're getting close to 2006. If I do that, I think it was January 20th, if I do this right, January 20th, 2006, that's 25 years. This is perfect. It actually works out better than I could have imagined. I can get this story finished in time to run for the very day of the 25th anniversary. And it was kind of funny, the Washington Post ran it on the front page of the whole paper, what we call above the fold, which means the top half of the paper. And those days when it sits in a newspaper box, you see the, you see the story. And so it got, you know, quite a, quite a bit of play at the time. And it was something that everybody saw, but the timing was perfect because it took me so long to do the thing. Uh, the funniest part too, or the, the other funny part is, is that many years later, 
I'm coming back to the Washington Post to interview. Uh, it's kind of been that hectic week when they've asked me if I'm, if I'm interested in Redskin beat. Now I'm actually coming into the office of Marty Barron, the, uh, you know, the famed editor of the Washington Post. And you know, I had no idea what he would think of me or my work or whatever. And the first thing he brings up is that story. Uh, yeah. because one of the people in that story, I included that story in a packet of clips that I sent them. And one of the people in that story, uh, has the last name of Razan. Turns out it was the father of uh, Jason Razan, a Washington Post writer who had been held in, in Iran for you know two years. I think most people probably know about that story. And uh, <laughs> ironically, uh, his father had apparently sold uh, carpets in, uh, or you know what you would call like uh, like Persian rugs uh, in in the Bay Area. And so uh, that's the first thing that Marty Barron had pulled out. And so if, if you ever have a connection in a story with somebody, here's all these years later, this brand new editor, or for me, brand new editor post, because he was not the editor then when I left, uh, is, is reading my story and commenting on it because one of the people at the post father is quoted in the story. So that's it's amazing. one of those things that kind of comes around and, uh, and probably was fresh in my mind when you asked me to send stories because, uh, just it was something that, that you know we've had that conversation just just a few months before. I just think it really the story goes to speak to the idea that like I, I'm I'm big into the idea that um, if you really want to do this well, you take the small and make it big. Like you could do a commemoration of the hostage situation and talk about them getting off the plane, or talk about the conflict between you know Iran and the United States, or the Shah. But you took this teeny tiny little thing and dug deep into it. And I, for me, those are the best stories. And those are the stories I enjoy writing the most, too. I don't know if you're that way as well, but those are the stories I enjoy doing. Oh, absolutely. I, I, those are the stories I love to do, too. And uh, you're right. I, it sometimes surprises me that, that a lot of writers tend not to think about the little thing that can be used to tell a bigger story. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. I always think that, you know, looking at a historical thing, if you want to find a, a story about I, I almost any kind of topic, uh, it's best to have something that you can build around to just get recollections almost becomes like a, uh, you know, this is kind of in vogue this day the, in this, in this era, although it's something I've never been a huge fan of the, the oral history. I, I feel like that almost becomes what a lot of stories are, just a whole bunch of quotes lined up together. Uh, I would much rather have something that you can put your fingers around, something that, that you can imagine, something, you know, in this case, of a, a baseball path. But I, I can think of several other stories that I've done where maybe it's a house or maybe it's a, a person or maybe it's a, a place, uh, whatever, a stadium. You know, there's always all these kinds of stories that I think you can use this sort of, non-living object to tell something that's very alive um let me ask you a final question who are the two redskins who know your name <laughs> i knew you were going to ask that colt mccoy is one uh i had talked to colt uh a couple times when i was at the uh at yahoo went back when he was at the cleveland browns and uh i think he uh he actually <laughs> remembered that conversation uh, and, uh, you know, so when I went up and introduced myself, I don't know, ever since then he started calling me less. Uh, the other is, a an offensive lineman who's, uh, on injured reserve and, and hasn't played all year. 
his name's Ari Kwanjo, but I, I, you know, I struck up a conversation with him one day and I went back to him to ask him some questions for a story I was doing again. And we struck up another conversation. And after that, he started calling me by my name. So those are the well, two fun. players. I don't know who else does, but as you said, it really doesn't matter. Um, well, listen, listen, I, uh, I, uh, I love your work. Um, I love that you agreed to do this. And, uh, seriously, I really, I really, really appreciate it. So thank you so much. This is kind of a thrill for me to talk to you. I, I, I mean that seriously. I want to thank today's guest, Les Carpenter, for joining me on Two Writers Sing and Yang. You can follow Les on Twitter at Les Carpenter and read his work in the Washington Post. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at www.503-sports.com. My still newest book, Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL, is available everywhere. One can listen to Two Riders Sling and Yang on Apple Podcasts and Google Play, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the electric MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing. Close your eyes and